Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Curtis Judd is an audio expert, originally from Los Angeles. His initial dabbling in the arts resulted in a need to understand sound recording. And he now runs two YouTube channels where he demystifies this challenging field. In this episode, he talks about his love of photography, audio principles for content creators, and the future of the creator economy. I grew up in uh, Los Angeles area, California. I was born in Northridge. My parents moved to a place called Thousand Oaks, which is a suburb to the north of Los Angeles when I was two. So I grew up in that area, lived in the same house from that point on until it was time for me to go to university. So it was a good place to live in a lot of ways. My brothers and I did plenty of surfing. We lived close enough to the ocean to, to do some of that. My younger brother, Carrie, got into music, playing music, and eventually also composing and write, you know, writing and singer-songwriter type stuff. In fact, I remember, I think I was 19 years old, or right around there, maybe 18. He was about 15 years old, and <laughs> he and his friends had started a band in his friend's garage, and they called it Lloyd's Garage. I don't know if they really meant for that to be the name of the band or, you know, it was just a tongue-in-cheek thing until they came up with a better name. But in any case, they scraped together enough money. They had, I think, four or five songs that they had put together and they wanted to record it. So they, they scraped together enough money. They, they uh, got a deal at a local recording studio to come in on a Saturday and crank, in, you know, crank out five songs in one day. They were too young to drive, so <laughs> they asked me to uh, drive. So I, we, we all piled into the Judd family van and headed over to the recording studio. That was my first time really ever getting kind of anywhere close to pro-level audio recording types of things. And so it was really kind of a, it was, it was fascinating then, and it's still fascinating to me today. When I went to university, my freshman year, I was trying to figure out what to study. I, I came from a family of a lot of accountants, <laughs> and I was not, for, for whatever reason, I, my, my dad was an accountant, my mom's father, so my grandfather was an accountant, one of my uncles was an accountant, one of my aunts was an accountant, uh, CPAs. My mom was this really creative, she just had this creative persona, she was always making something. And when it came time to go to college, you know, when you apply, you you know, they ask you what you think your major is going to be. And I just put accounting because I, I didn't know what else to put. But then I realized once I got to school, I was like, there's, there's something that, you know, doesn't sit right with me with accounting, no, nothing, uh, you know, not casting any shade on anyone that does accounting. Well, we need accountants in the world. <laughs> but I found myself a lot of times in the university library when I was supposed to be studying for, you know, all my general ed classes, the biology and the college algebra and so on and so forth, I often drifted over into the photography section and I could be found kind of sitting down on the floor at the end of the stacks, just pouring through anything I could get my hands on about photography. And in fact, during my freshman year, I probably rather unwisely, I don't know, I put together enough money to buy, a, uh, this was actually back in the film days. So I bought a single lens reflex 35 millimeter camera and ate ramen for the next three weeks or so just to, you know, keep myself going. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of the beginning for me of the audiovisual creation phase. So before that, I had, you know, I, while I'd been exposed to the, the recording studio earlier, I always had a, an appreciation for really nice, especially landscape photography back then. I was really into Ansel Adams and the work that he had done. And so when I got my first camera, my freshman year, I was doing everything I could to, to learn the craft. And that was kind of, that was kind of the start for me uh, and my, my creative endeavors. And I did eventually figure out that I couldn't just read photography books all the time. Um, <laughs> I also did take a film studies class or as an introductory film studies class at the university I attended. And that was absolutely fascinating to me where we got to dive into the various elements of filmmaking. We talked about, of course, acting. We talked about art direction and design. We talked about lighting. We talked about sound design. 
And I was just absolutely taken by that class. And I don't know, I'm not even sure why it didn't occur to me that, oh, you know what? You could actually study film. <laughs> I didn't even, it didn't even register with me somehow. I ended up studying family psychology and um, I don't regret that. I don't think, I think that gave me a lot of interesting insights, especially on the research end of things, but really my, my way to unwind and my way to kind of find creative fulfillment has always been in the audiovisual realm. So that's kind of how it started. I was in my early 20s. I married Danny, who is my wife. We've been married ever since then, of course. But one of the things I was working on then was starting my own photography business, my own portrait photography business. And I started down that path and it was it was tough. I was still in school. I was finishing up university and it was hard to get real traction. And I didn't really have a clear understanding of what it takes to start a business and to run a business. And so I, I kind of got my start there where we're getting just a tiny bit of traction. But, you know, the realities of the world set in as well. And as I finished my degree, you know, there were some opportunities for employment working for other other companies at the time. Uh, I ended up taking a job with, and maybe people will laugh when they hear this, but I worked for AOL, the <laughs> America Online. And that was exciting. And and the thrill of that was, you know, I started when AOL was still on its upward trend in terms of, you know, finances and adding membership and, and all of that business. So, you know, the internet was just a brand new thing at the time. That was all very exciting too, because it, you know, every time you had your annual review, you'd get a stock option grant. And this is the trick is that it, you get starry eyed when all this money is in front of you when you don't have a lot of money and it can be really intoxicating. Was that the wrong direction for me? I don't think so. I think I still, you know, for me, I still held on to my photography as a, basically as a hobby. As time marched on, there were other opportunities where I eventually got into audio recording. You know, eventually those all came together. They converged. I don't know how things would have been different if I had actually pursued that photography passion earlier on. I suspect it would have been very different. I don't think I would be in a position where I'd be doing exactly what I'm doing now. And I, th I think that's okay. So I, I guess in the end, I don't really have regrets for the decisions I made. I think most people that, you know, operate with integrity will realize at some point, I made this choice to take this career because it was for the money and I hate it. And, and that's not always the case. Some people love doing certain things. People love, you know, it's okay to work in business too, if that's your first passion. But there are a good number of people that make a career choice or make a major choice in university based on the potential for money. And I think unless you really love the area in which you're going to be operating and the work you'll be doing, that may be a mistake. And I think most people will eventually realize that and, and make the changes, hopefully, necessary to, to find fulfillment, whatever, whatever form that may take. Though busy working for Silicon Valley during the first great tech boom, Curtis still remained enthralled with his first artistic passion, photography. The thing that's really fascinating to me about photography to this day, and unfortunately I don't get to do as much of it as I used to, but the thing that's really fascinating to me about photography is that it is a visual art where you're capturing an image. You know, lighting is, is very much the same in photography as it is in filmmaking. The difference is you're generally telling a story in a single frame or perhaps in a very small number of frames. You know, maybe if you have a collection for on a particular topic or whatever. But the thing that's so fascinating to me about that is that there's this incredibly concise nature to photography that, you know, in filmmaking, you have the benefit of time. In photography, you have just a frame, which is a very, very small slice of time. And to be able to tell a story in a single frame, I think takes a lot more effort. It's a lot harder to do. And it takes a lot more intentionality and a lot more, I think, preparation as well. So it's a really, it's a fascinating concept to me. And I think just a really fascinating art. Even if you're talking about commercial photography, if you're talking, or even like portraits or anything like that, really, from my point of view, the goal is if you're taking a portrait of a person, you're trying to capture as many dimensions of that person as you can. And it's not just, okay, this is what the, it's not just a document of, you know, this is what this person looks like, period. It's more of a, let's capture their personality in some way, or let's capture some portion of the story of their life or something like that. To me, it's, it's deeper than just 
standing in front of a it's it's not a mugshot it's a although a mugshot can actually be quite artistic too <laughs> and actually tell quite a story as well but it's not just a document it's not just a driver's license photo it is really to me an opportunity or, or a way to capture multiple dimensions of a person my wife and i when we first got married we lived in tucson arizona so down in the desert and we would get up and go up to the mountains there. The biggest mountain to the north is uh, Mount Lemon. And we would go up there. There was one morning we got up, I think at probably 4 a.m. and drove up and started hiking around just as the sun was coming up. And I had my tripod set up and the camera on it and doing some landscape work. Danny had gone ahead. She kept hiking. We had, you know, she didn't want to necessarily sit around and wait for me all, all the time <laughs> with the photographs. And she's a uh, you know, she's a paleontologist, so she's fascinated by being out in the woods on her own. So she's out up ahead of me exploring on the trail. And I'm standing there and I hear what sounds like somebody running down the side of the mountain, like not on the trail. The trail is kind of cutting through this ravine between two peaks. And I'm, I hear what sounds like someone kind of just stumbling down the side of the mountain. And I'm like, what is going on? Is it like some kids playing hide and seek at, you know, six in the morning? <laughs> I look up at one point and realize, oh, that's a black bear. And <laughs> the black bear, I think, was as surprised to see me as I was to see it. And we had kind of a standoff just staring at each other for a while. I finally grabbed the, there was a sapling next to me. I started, I grabbed that and started shaking it and was ready to pick up the tripod and start, you know, you just look big and intimidating. Eventually the, the bear lost interest and ran the other way, but uh, lots of, lots of fun times like that. And in fact, since then, the last 15, 16 years, we've lived in Utah, and we live at 6,000 feet altitude in the Wasatch Mountains, especially when we first moved here. But even to this day, there'll be times, it's just so beautiful. It's so amazingly beautiful, and there's so many opportunities. And I got my first digital SLR in 2007 and just went nuts. I spent every Saturday morning, I got up super early when I wasn't at work and headed out to various parts of the mountains. We did lots of hiking and little day trips and things like that. And the, the thing that was so awesome is that we're, you know, a day trip will get us deep into the mountains here. We're already in the mountains and then, you know, we can be out in the wilderness here within easily 30 minutes to, to an hour. And so just lots of opportunities to do such wonderful, wonderful landscape photography work here. I don't do a whole lot of that now. I do have curtisjuddphotography.com. But I haven't done much photography work, honestly, for probably the last 10 years. I've been so busy focused on teaching and in particular teaching lighting for film and video or, and, and photography and sound for video. So that's kind of taken up so much of my time that I haven't had an opportunity to do quite as much of that lately. The online teaching that would come to occupy much of Curtis's time had its genesis with his brother's continuing music career. This marked a shift in his focus from photography to sound and the formation and growth of his YouTube channels. I had mentioned earlier my brother is a musician and around 2000 he went to another recording studio. He, he started his own act. You know, this was not the same as the one I described before with his friends when he was a teenager, but he started his own act and he recorded his first album somewhere around 2000 and that was an interesting time in audio and in video for that matter or and photography where we were making this transition from i mean at this point the transition was pretty well underway for audio in particular as it was going from analog tape into digital and pro tools was out and he didn't quite have you know at that point to get a pro tools rig and everything set up it was still pretty expensive and so he went to a studio work with some engineers and producers to do his first album. I think he did the same for his second album. When it came time to his third album, this was probably in 2006, 2007, he was at a point in his career then when he could afford to build out a, a Pro Tools rig. And so I can't remember all the circumstances, but he came down here to Utah to make the purchase and buy his Digi003 audio interface to hook up to his computer. Uh, you know, some universal audio analog preamplifiers and compressors and a Neumann microphone. And on their way back, they stopped here at my house and with us. And uh, Carrie and I, of course, came down to the basement and just nerded out, setting everything up and getting it working and figuring out how it worked. And 
that to me was really kind of my very first hands-on with you know high quality audio recording equipment and so from that point forward i also did some roadie work for him so when he would go on tour um, there were various times when i would take off time from my work and travel the united states with him on tour acting as his roadie and doing the setup and breakdown of all the shows and just a lot of fun times and a lot of lot of learning for me in terms of how audio worked and how recording and even live sound reinforcement works and so that's really for me that was the big learning period from about 2007 to probably 2010 2012 somewhere in there but at the same time we were seeing this convergence happen as well in 2000 and trying to remember when it happened but you know obviously first we had digital slrs so i got a nikon d50 in 2007 um, and i think that we first started seeing the digital slrs in about 2004 if i remember right somewhere in there and then the really big step from my perspective is that when we started seeing digital slrs that added video recording features and that was when the nikon d90 and the canon 5d mark ii came out within the course of about a two-week period <laughs> and that was a super exciting time and at first i resisted i was like I'm, I'm still very much a photographer i had already started learning how to record you know voiceover and audiobooks and stuff like that so i was already focused on recording dialogue but for me i really wanted to stick with photography which i felt like was a again it had this really fascinating quality of single frame storytelling to it but eventually i I realized, you know what, I think there's some things I could do that I haven't been able to do if I started recording video as well. And so it was probably a couple of years after that. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I bought my Canon 60D, which was the more affordable version uh, of video recording DSLR from Canon and started making my first YouTube videos. And at, at the first, I was just experimenting. I wasn't, I didn't have any grand plan. I was just fascinated by the, you know, what what the technology offered as far as creativity and what I could create with it. And my very first uh, videos that I uploaded to YouTube, I think was in 2009, but I think that was actually before I had a camera. <laughs> and here's, here's how that went, is it was a microphone comparison. And I just literally had a still image of one microphone for the first half of the video and the other microphone for the second half of the video while I voiced over underneath it and just explained kind of my impressions of the two different microphones. But then once I got the Canon 60D, then I was able to start doing things where I could actually be on camera and describing things. And what was interesting to me is that to me, it was very much a, I'm learning how to do this and I want to just share that with other people. So I figured out this is a problem that I was up against. I was having a hard time recording quality audio when I got my first shotgun microphone. You know, I was like, why doesn't this sound very good when I mounted on top of the camera? And solving that problem and being able to share that, th that's where a lot of my early videos focused on things like that, where just teaching the absolute fundamentals by the things that I had learned through experimentation. That was super fulfilling. To me, I realized at that point that it wasn't just about the technology and it wasn't just about, for me, it wasn't just about the craft. I, I loved learning the craft and I knew that I wasn't probably, <laughs> I wasn't going to be a director of photography based on my skills that I'd developed so far. And, and I guess at that point, I just enjoyed what I found was I really enjoyed sharing what I had learned with other people. And that became really fulfilling for me. That led to the two YouTube channels, and I posted my first video in 2009 with no intention of, of anything, just an opportunity to complete a project and you know, make progress in learning the craft that I was interested in learning. I think I made the first commitment, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014. I, I think in 2013, I started playing with posting more videos. I was, again, just posting short educational videos about things I had learned periodically, probably once a month-ish or so. And then in 20, I think it was 2014 where I made a commitment, hey, I wanna post a video once a week just to kind of really supercharge my learning. I started doing that. It was in 2015 that I created my first online course. And that's when I created my second YouTube channel. And the purpose behind that one at the time was when you have an online course as a student, one of my experiences was it's, it can be really frustrating if there's no one to ask questions of, if you get stuck somewhere or if you have something that wasn't addressed the way you had hoped in the course. And so as part of that, I created this second channel where I would just do weekly, what I called sound for video sessions, where you could come and ask your questions. And it was a live, usually a live stream, not always, but um, it is a live stream every week now. Um, at the time, I started doing live streams sometimes. 
and uh, it became a forum where people could ask questions that had signed up for my course. But anyone was welcome. Anyone, you know, it was an open channel, so anyone could come to it. And that became a really fulfilling thing as well, again, because of the opportunities to teach. And, and actually, an interesting thing happened there is that this concept of community was pretty ephemeral to me until it started happening a little bit. And it happens around a YouTube channel to some extent because you have comments that you can leave on the videos, but it really happens when you have a live stream where there's a live chat. The community aspect of it became really fascinating to me, and it and actually is very fascinating to me today, where I don't know the answers to everything, but we have now this group of enthusiasts or this community that comes to these live streams and they help each other out. And it's really, really fascinating. It's To me, it's a, it's a great thing, especially once the pandemic hit. And, you know, at first everyone was at home. Um, it became a really good way for people to connect during that time of isolation and be able to kind of hone their craft and work together with like-minded people, people that were also fascinated by audio for video, um, which is really niche at some level. <laughs> but it's a really, you know, it's a it's an interesting little community that we, it's not just me, but it's everyone there that's been a part of it is just so fascinating to me, so exciting and enjoyable. The tricky part too, I guess, with the live stream, you know, you have to try and optimize the time so that the audience, if they happen to be spread across the entire world, when do you do it? I've toyed with that a lot. You know, do I alternate where I have one that works for people in the Asia Pacific region and, you know, and another one that works for people in the Americas and another one that's, you know, more optimized for Europe and Middle East and Asia, you know, or Middle East and Africa, you know, it just, I haven't found all the answers, but <laughs> what's fun to me is that we do have a pretty healthy community that's built up in the, certainly in the Americas. And I think Europe, there are a good number of people that are actively involved from, from those areas for sure. Asia is a little harder. Um, I don't think there's quite as much, you know, I don't know any of the languages there and I don't know that there's as quite as much English spoken there so that one's a little trickier but it's been it's been a lot of fun and really fulfilling the growth of curtis's youtube channels have forced him to make some difficult decisions regarding his career and overall time management so i have a traditional day job and i actually changed jobs in 2021 at my previous job before 2021 I had been there for 14 and a half years, and it was a software company. I was the video guy and a product manager uh, at the software company. The great thing about that job is that, you know, I had been there since 2006, so I'd been working there for quite some time, and I, I knew my domain pretty well. I could work a pretty reasonable set of hours and come home and still have energy at night to really get things going. And that's, that's when I launched my YouTube channel and my online courses. And I think... What happened was, you know, during the pandemic, when it first hit and, you know, everyone was working from home, that particular business slowed down quite a bit. It was a software company that provides software for airlines and the airlines had, in essence, really, really slowed down. So it was a slow time. It was a little scary because it wasn't clear whether, you know, how, how well the business was going to fare through that period of time and how long the pandemic was going to last and how long the, the airlines would be kind of flying a lot less than they typically fly. Eventually, I got in contact with, well, a company contacted me out in California called Webflow. And uh, my now manager there, McGuire Brannon, contacted me and he just wanted to see if I would be able to come, you know, on a contract basis, come help them with some of their questions they had about audio for video. They're producing educational videos and just wanted to, you know, level up a little bit. So I, you know, spent a couple mornings, you know, early mornings before work contracting and, and working with him on some things there. And then he said, hey, could we maybe arrange something bigger? Could we arrange a way to spend a week with you or, or something? And so <laughs> I ended up taking a week of vacation from my job and we did a little workshop type thing where we'd spend uh, about an hour in the mornings on the phone or on a Zoom call talking through what some of their challenges were and then me going off for the rest of the day and putting together little video tutorials and then coming back the next day and presenting those video tutorials and running through what other additional questions I had. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. Probably a month later, maybe two months later, I emailed McGuire again and I said, hey, if you ever have any openings there and you're looking for somebody that you know knows a little bit about audio for video and video, <laughs> let me know. And then a position came open and that's where I'm at now. So I'm managing the video production group at Webflow. And I work with a great 
incredible set of producers and editors and we have so much fun putting those videos together but i haven't gotten to a point where uh, oh at the same time i should say and this is part of the story for why i still have a day job um <laughs> is my daughter is a, a attending university right now so we're paying for that and you know i just didn't want to i didn't want to make that leap until she had an opportunity to graduate i i know one thing that i had it was a great benefit in my life is that my parents and grandparents helped pay for my university education. And it was so wonderful to be able to graduate without a whole ton of debt. And Downey and I wanted to provide that for our daughter as well. So that's one of the things that we were doing. She's coming up on graduation, but I love my job. So <laughs> I think what I've decided to do is instead of quit my job, which I'm not planning to do, but instead... Emma has been helping with the videos on the channel when she was in high school and even periodically while she's been in university, we were looking to hire her as a full-time producer so that she can help me because my new job is a lot more demanding than my old job was. And the amount of hours that I have to put in and the, you know, just kind of the, the amount of effort that goes into it, I'm a little bit more tired at night than I used to be coming home from work. And so <laughs> having her to be able to help, and she already knows a lot of the process uh, behind what it takes to produce what we're producing. And so she'll be coming on as a full-time producer once she graduates. So I'm really looking forward to that, where it'll give us an opportunity, A, to work together. That'll be fun. She has a degree in music. She's, or she will have a degree in music and she's very, very creative and loves doing this type of work as well. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be uh, an opportunity to pick up the pace again. I've really kind of slowed the pace the last little bit, um, just because I've been, you know, the work hours have been a little longer and this will help us kind of supercharge things again and, and be able to create content a little bit faster, more frequently. Curtis gives an overview on the topics he covers on his YouTube channels, namely audio principles, technical advice for content creators, and gear reviews and instruction. It's really interesting to me that most people that start creating content initially have very little appreciation for audio but those that are serious about it what i find is that those are really that are really serious about it realize within a period of time usually you know whether that's 6 months or a year or you know if they're constantly creating somewhere in that time frame they'll realize uh my audio's really not that great at some point one of two things happens they either they're just looking for the magic bullet solution like they just want to buy a good microphone to solve that problem and then some of them, I think, realize, okay, it's more than just a good microphone. I need, to, I need to really kind of figure this out and learn how audio works. And those that dedicate themselves to it, figure it out. They find, you know, the basics, for example, are, are pretty, pretty easy. And, you know, getting your microphone off of your camera and closer to the sound source, number one thing. A lot of people don't want to use a boom microphone. They just feel like that's just too much. And I'd rather use a lavalier microphone. And, they, and then they learn, oh, lavalier microphones sound like you're putting your ear up against someone's chest. Um, <laughs> and then they realize, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's not the solution for me. Maybe I need to learn how to EQ the sound in post. And that can help a lot. Or maybe I need to look at learning how to place the lavalier microphone. Where's the best place to put it so that I don't get the clothing rustle, the you know, the rubbing of the clothing against the microphone capsule. And so, so it just, it kind of leads down this path. And the challenge I think is that for those that are super visually oriented, some of them just don't want to be bothered, but most of them that are really serious about the craft will spend the time and figure it out. They just need a resource. They need a place where they can go to help make that learning efficient so that they don't have to dedicate two years of their lives to, <laughs> to figuring it out. And hopefully that's what I'm providing. The interesting thing with sound is that a lot of people, especially in this day and age, we're used to having these really amazing technological devices. We have phones in our pockets that are incredibly powerful, way more powerful than full-blown you know, desktop computers from just three or four years ago. We also are used to companies producing technologies that magically fix problems for us, <laughs> You know, even on the audio front. If you look at the newest MacBooks, for example, from Apple, they have these arrays of microphones and the, they're doing a whole ton of processing in the background to try and identify what's the actual sound source and what's a reflected sound source, what's a reverberant sound, and being able to process that in real time. And so a lot of us assume that, oh, this technology must exist in 
all recording gear. We can just go buy a, a really good microphone and all of our audio problems are solved. I'm going to sound like I'm in a studio and it's going to be great. And <laughs> it's not quite that simple. The trick I find is, is that whenever there's real-time audio processing going on, even the very best at the professional level, the very best noise reduction. So for example, things like Cedar DNS, which is a denoising piece of hardware, noise assist within the sound devices, professional level gear, it can help. It can definitely help. So if you're talking in a space and you have an air conditioner running in the background, if you're close to your mic, that noise assist or that Cedar DNS can do a great job of helping to remove some of that noise. But it's not perfect. And in fact, if you start pushing that technology pretty hard, you say, you know, crank it up, crank up that denoise, then it just starts cutting into your voice and it doesn't sound great. And so for me, I think the biggest thing to understand is that don't worry about that stuff. Don't try to solve the problem with that stuff. Try to use some of the basic fundamental principles of getting a great audio recording. Those principles are basically number one, get the microphone close. Don't leave it three meters away on top of your camera and expect it to sound like a studio when you're three meters away. It's going to sound like it's three meters away. And <laughs> yes, you can buy microphones that you know have a, a very directional pickup pattern. So they'll pick up just what's in front of them. That's a very oversimplified way of looking at it, but they're more directional. So they're not going to pick up as much of the sound on the side and behind the camera. That helps. But if you really want it to sound great, you're probably going to get, need to get the microphone. For example, if it's a shotgun microphone or a boom, other type of boom microphone, you're going to want to get that up above the person that's talking within, if you can, 30, 40, at most, maybe 50 centimeters away from their mouth so that you have a really clean, isolated sound. And uh, aimed down from above is probably the best generally too, because then the thing is with microphones is they'll pick up whatever is behind the person speaking as well as the person speaking. So if you have it up above and aimed down, typically there's not quite as much noise coming from the floor behind the person speaking. And so that's a really great way to kind of isolate and just get the sound you want and not pick up nearly as much of the sound that you don't want. So that's a, that's a really important one. Other people, um, you know, they start doing research and they're like, oh, I, what I really need is an XLR microphone, a microphone with those XLR cables. You know, that's professional and it must sound better. Maybe, maybe not. It depends. Um, it really st still largely depends on microphone technique and getting the microphone in close. But the advantage with the XLR microphones is, A, usually they are better microphones. They're usually just, they're more expensive. They usually have more research and design and engineering that go into them. So they usually are better sounding microphones. But they also give you the opportunity to run longer cables. And so you can have a dedicated sound person that is operating a, you know, a sound recorder who's focused 100% on sound while your camera operator is operating picture separately so that you, whenever you have someone dedicated to an, a specific topic or a specific job, they can usually do a better job at it. Um, they can identify problems earlier and solve those problems before you get too much farther in. So that's a big thing. But an XLR microphone in and of itself won't make a big difference. And I think a lot of people make that mistake. For example, you could buy a one of these camera top shotgun microphones, like a Rode video mic. As long as you get that off the camera and up close to the talent, that can sound every bit as good as a dedicated XLR-based shotgun microphone. It's just a matter of getting it close. Now, the trick with that is you can't be too far from the camera because it has an unbalanced connection, an unbalanced 3.5 millimeter connection. So you can't run that cable very far before it starts to degrade the audio. So that is the way in which it changes things a little bit. But you don't have to spend a ton of money. It's just really, if you can get the microphone close and you can control the sound in the room, the reflected sound in particular, and any noise, you can make great recordings, even with a modest microphone. A lot of podcasters, I think, there are a couple of challenges that they face. Number one is that most of the times they're recording in spaces at their home or other spaces that just were not designed for their acoustical properties. And so <laughs> a lot of times what they're finding is that when a podcaster first starts to, to record, they're finding, okay, I'm getting this really echoey sound is how it's often described, how they describe it. Typically what's happening is that sound is bouncing off of walls, it's reverberation. As they talk, the sound bounces off the wall, it comes back and enters the microphone, and it gives that really kind of less than desirable sound for most podcasts and what they're aiming for. So that's one of the big mistakes or big challenges, I guess. Not necessarily a mistake, but one of the challenges and learnings that most podcasters do. I had a consulting job a few years ago, 
a guy who runs a gym here in town, and he formerly did a lot of training for actors, um, you know, like strength and body conditioning for actors for a lot of the big films, like a lot of the superhero films and stuff like that. I think he'd had enough of that. He was ready to settle down a little bit more, so opened a gym here in Salt Lake and wanted to do a podcast. And he, <laughs> the gym was set up in this warehouse space, and then it also had some office space. And this one office that he chose in which to record it was this sort of square room with glass walls on two sides. And when I got there, he had plastered a bunch of this acoustical foam on the walls and he said, it's just, it's just really not helping that much. And I said, no, I don't imagine it is. <laughs> In their case, what they wanted to do is they, they wanted kind of a quick solution. So I said, you know, let's order right now. Let's order six sound blankets and we can have those here within the next few days and get those set up. You know, we can hang them from the ceiling if you like, or if you don't want to have something permanent, we can put them on C stands. And we did that. And the sound quality of that podcast Sky, I mean, it was just night and day difference. It was so, so different. And he got really excited and they said, okay, now I need you to teach me how to, how to do the post-processing. And so we also focused some, some time on that as well. And I'm actually really proud of them. They, they are producing a podcast. I don't, I don't know if it's still running. Um, it was called the Dissect Podcast, really for ultra athletes. I don't know if that's the right term, but people that run, you know, the 100 mile ultrathons and you know triathlons and all this kind of really extreme sports stuff but it was a it was a night and day difference and that that's a thing that i i think a lot of podcasters struggle with another thing is that microphone choice is a challenge for a lot of podcasters they they do what a lot of other podcasters do they might go buy you know what a voiceover artist does and they'll go buy a, an expensive even if you know an expensive or a not so expensive condenser microphone and then they're disappointed when they're getting a bunch of room sound picked up by the microphone in addition to their voice. If you're working in a space where you just can't do a lot of acoustical treatment, a lot of times a dynamic microphone is going to be a much better choice. You'll have to work up closer on it. But as a result of working up closer on it, you're going to pick up a lot less of the room noise and the room reverberations and sound. And so that's another thing that a lot of podcasters eventually figure out and solve that problem with. It's a balance. Um, you know, obviously you have to have decent gear. And I think that with microphones, for example, there are some pretty decent $100 microphones. You get up into the $200 range and you can get some really, in 2022 at least, you get some really surprisingly great sounding microphones. So yeah, you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on microphones. If you can treat your room in some fashion or choose the right type of microphone for your room or choose the place where you do your recordings, oftentimes bedrooms are going to be better than dining rooms, for example. Dining rooms will often more likely have hard floors, hard, you know, obviously hard ceilings and walls, a big flat hard surface that is a table sitting right in front of them. All these things where sound can reflect and create this reverberant sound, but maybe choosing a bedroom where you have a big soft bed and maybe, you know, some curtains over the windows that help absorb some of the sound before it reflects and that can make a big big difference as well another thing that some people do is they record in their closets to get a really dry studio kind of sound just put the microphone up against all the clothes that are hanging there and talk into the clothes in the microphone <laughs> and that'll absorb a lot of that audio before it starts bouncing all over the place i think the biggest thing is for people to learn when that when it comes to sound for video or even sound for podcasts is there there are some basic processing plugins that are really handy to understand and to get a basic understanding of how they work. I think number one is, first of all, a high-pass filter, which is oftentimes part of an EQ plugin, or it can be a standalone thing, either way. Sometimes it's called a low cut. It, that's the same thing. And all it's doing is filtering out the really low frequencies, the frequencies below where the voice sits. So really, really low, bassy, rumbly kind of sounds. Nobody's voice makes those, can even reproduce those frequencies. And so a lot of times that's just room noise. It's just stuff you don't even want. And so with dialogue audio, at least, applying a high pass filter somewhere around 50 hertz for men's voices and maybe closer to 80, 90, maybe even 100 hertz for women's voices, you can cut out a lot of that noise and not affect the voice in any way. So that'll just clean up the audio in a nice way. Another thing is EQ. Everybody's voice is different. Every microphone is different. And the combination of a voice and a microphone may sound amazing or it may sound awful <laughs> and it doesn't mean that the voice is bad or the microphone is bad it's just not a good fit that stuff just happens and so learning the basics of eq can help a lot too and a lot of times what i find is that 
using an EQ, what it does is it, it takes the audio spectrum, so from the lowest frequency sounds, the bass sounds, all the way up to the highest frequency sounds, the letter S when we speak as, as humans, or a symbol if you're thinking about music in a drum kit, that's a high frequency sound. You can actually use an EQ and you can go find the frequencies within that person's voice that just sound a little bit harsh. And with an EQ, you can, you can slide around and find that frequency and cut it just a little bit. And if you do that, suddenly a recording that sounded really kind of harsh suddenly sounds really, really sweet and warm and rich and really inviting. And so learning how to use an equalizer like that, an EQ, can be a really, really great tool. I have a, an EQ video on YouTube that demonstrates how to do that to make it a really easy process. Another thing that I think is really important too is getting consistent loudness. That makes a huge difference. As, as human beings, psychologically, and here's where some of my psychology background has actually paid off, <laughs> is um, there's some psychoacoustics research that has shown that when people are listening to two different audio recordings, for example, say they're the same basic thing, a person talking, for example, if a person hears one of them and it's louder than the other one, they'll almost always choose the louder one as sounding better. So it's a really fascinating thing. So having loud present audio that's consistent from video to video, so your audience doesn't have to go you know, dive for the volume control every time a new video comes on, can make a huge, huge difference. And as a result of that, using something that's called a compressor will help you be able to achieve that loudness that you're trying to aim for, that consistent loudness. And so what a compressor does is when we talk, if you think of it in, as a waveform, a wave, when we talk a little bit louder, that waveform gets taller. And when we talk quieter, the waveform is much shorter. And what a compressor does is it takes those taller parts of the speaking and kind of smashes them down a little bit. And then that, what that does is it gives you a little bit more room to increase the overall volume or loudness, if you will. Technically, it's not volume. At that point, it's loudness. But that allow you to get that consistency from video to video. In addition to that, what compression does is kind of interesting as well, is it does give, if, especially for the podcasters, is it gives that, that kind of broadcast sound to it. So if you get up really close on your microphone, a lot of podcasters want this sound. <laughs> to me, that's a little bit over, you know, overstated there, but it does a little bit of that. It does give you a little bit of a kind of a warmer, more intimate sound in a lot of times with dialogue. And so that can also, if you're going specifically for that sound, that can be something that helps as well. We are starting to see products that are just amazing. They make the job of recording sound easier than it's ever been and producing higher quality easier and easier. And I think what's interesting about that to me is that, you know, some people start to get this kind of cloud and rainstorm over them and like, oh, it's going to there's not going to be any work left for sound mixers. And I, <laughs> I don't really see it that way. I think there's still some uh, really important roles that a, that a sound mixer plays, a dizzying array of roles that a, a mixer plays. And, you know, when I talk about a mixer, in this case, I'm talking about a person, for example, on a film set who's responsible for capturing the sound. There are just so many things that even with these new devices and the amazing new features they bring, so for example, they, you know, if you think about the, the podcast recorders, we have the Rodecaster Pro and the Zoom has the, their live tracks and their pod tracks and Zoom has their F series of recorders, which there's the Zoom F3, the Zoom F4, Zoom F8, uh, so on. And so F6, um, really amazing features. And some of the things that they're doing now are really, really impressive, what they're able to accomplish. And they also... They make it especially easier for people that are solo, what I call solo operators. And by that, what I mean is a person that is operating camera, doing the lighting design, recording audio, directing, possibly even interviewing the talent. If they're doing all those things, it's really hard to do any of them well. And what these new devices do to some extent, for example, the Zoom F series or the sound devices mixed pre-series recorders, they have a I, this is a term that I don't I don't like this to use this term, but they've chosen to use this term to describe their recorders. They call them 32-bit float capable recorders. And what they do essentially is they make it so that in digital audio, you don't have the kind of one of the fundamental problems that has plagued digital audio since its inception. And that is, is if the sound source is amplified too much or it gets too loud, it will actually distort very quickly. And it works a little bit differently than analog audio recordings used to work, but that's a big issue. And if you're 
if you're the director and you're the camera operator and you're interviewing and you have to make sure everything's working right, it's really hard to keep your your focus. And the, the nice thing about these new recorders that do 32-bit float recording is that if the audio does get up to zero dB, which is normally the max that you can go to before the audio starts distorting, these recorders will actually record beyond that. It's not a problem. And so if somebody, for example, laughs into their microphone as part of the interview, if you're doing an interview, that won't be distorted and clipped anymore, even if you have set the gain fairly high. Is that a game changer? I think it is. I think it's still important for people to learn how to set their gain appropriately, but it does definitely help those solo operators in those situations where they have their minds on a million other things. And setting the gain level or adjusting the gain level again might be an oversight. They might miss it. And so I think this really makes a huge difference for them. Now, does it help the people working at the high end of the market as well? I think it does. That particular feature is going to be more helpful for people um, working at the high end of the market. And by that, I mean people that are doing sound for films, you know, million budget dollar films. For them, having a recorder like that can solve some particular problems as well. As an example, if they are doing a film, uh, a scene where it's in a car and they can't hide the sound mixer in the back of the car for, <laughs> for practical reasons, what the sound mixer can do is, you know, get everything set up, try and get a, a good sample of the people talking that are going to be in the car, the actors, and then set their levels and then let the car go. And they're going to go and record what they record and come back. He or she doesn't have any control over their recorder at that point. Maybe they're in a follow car and maybe they have a wireless connection they can control, but maybe not. And if not, that 32-bit float recording can save them as well. It can make it so if there's a really good take, but it went above zero dB, then it won't be clipped. So that's really good news in those situations as well. So there are so many other things that production sound mixers do. I don't see these kind of features taking that away. Another example I think that's really nice is just what I would view as really a time-saving feature. For example, one of the things that the Zoom F-Series recorders and the Sound Devices Mix Pre recorders have on them is a various types of auto mix features. And where that's really helpful, especially for podcasters, say, for example, is that if you put multiple microphones in a single room and you have multiple people talking, say, you know, Matt, you and I are in a room, I'm talking into my microphone, you're talking into yours. The trick is when I talk, my microphone picks me up, but your microphone also picks me up a little bit. Likewise, when you talk, your microphone picks you up, but my microphone also picks up a little bit of you. And that just sort of emphasizes that reverberation sound in a room. And in addition to that, if there's any sort of noise in the room, when I'm not talking, my microphone is still picking up noise in the room. And so what this auto mix feature does, and it's, it's implemented in various ways, but what the auto mix feature does in essence is when you're talking into your microphone, it's giving you your full volume, if you will, your full amplification. And it takes my microphone and actually reduces its level. So it's not picking up as much. And then as soon as I start talking, my levels go back up and your levels go down because you're not actively talking. And so that becomes a really serious time-saving feature for a podcaster. Say, for example, a podcaster is putting together a show that's an hour long. That's a lot of work in post to go in and clean up all of that, to take the person's microphone who's not talking and reduce its level for the periods where they're not talking, to get this really, really clean, beautiful sound. The Automix will automate a lot of that for you which is a huge, huge time saver. So uh, maybe there are some people that are going to cry that that job is now gone, but I, it's certainly not me. <laughs> Curtis gives his current outlook on the future of the creator economy and overall advice to content creators. I think the new content creation is here to stay. Is it a bubble? Yeah, it's probably a bubble as well. But, you know, there are a lot of content creators that get started. And I've, you know, I, even in the time that I've been doing, I've seen some really great creators come and, and then stop posting. And, they, you know, they're off to doing other creative pursuits. And that's, I think, perfectly fine, of course. But I also don't think it's too late for someone to start if they wanted to start. I think everyone has a unique voice and, you know, unique things that they can contribute. But I think it's here to stay. I don't think there's any... Uh, will it always be YouTube? Not necessarily. I think we've seen plenty of technology and other types of companies come and go and I think that'll happen but I do think that the whole concept the whole idea of individual people at their homes or you know wherever they happen to be creating content that's definitely here to stay and it's interesting I think a lot of people you know we've seen we've seen some massive changes in the way media is consumed and the types of media that are consumed by people on a regular basis 
The streaming services are really putting a massive strain on the traditional broadcast world. Uh, when I was a kid, you if you wanted to watch, you know, Seinfeld, you had to be there when Seinfeld was on or you're not going to see it. And now it like it doesn't that doesn't matter. It's, streaming has solved that problem for us. And, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's going away. There's just so many people that have so many unique perspectives and it, uh, it gives an opportunity for so many niche groups and communities to come together. I don't think it's going anywhere. It's just a, it's a wonderful opportunity. When I was in a, in a camera club years ago, it was a great experience from a lot of ways. We did various activities. We went and did photo shoots together. We brought in specialists in various areas and we learned a lot. For me, it was a 35 mile drive to get there. <laughs> Some people aren't even that close and so, being able to connect with your community, you know, without those barriers is not something that's going away. If you're a content creator, I would take into account that if you're doing video, sound is half of the overall experience for your audience. But it's interesting, it might actually be, it, it probably should be weighted a little bit more than picture. Um, <laughs> and I know that a lot of people that are very focused on cameras may not want to hear that. But the reality is, is that if you put up a video that sounds great, but the picture is just mediocre, you know, if you have a good message, if you have something that's worthwhile to say or the audience finds value in, they're going to stick with it. If you have a message, a similar message that has value to your audience, you have amazing visuals, but your audio is really difficult to listen to, you're more likely to lose the audience. And it also, I think psychologically, changes the value of what you're saying if you have really bad audio if it's hard for people to listen to it sounds harsh or they have to keep you know moving their volume control or it's just fatiguing to listen to you know whatever your message might be is going to hold less weight with them psychologically even if they don't think this overtly they're going to feel like this is not a professional job this was not done professionally or they didn't put a lot of care into it and so I think there's a tremendous value in getting your audio to a point where it sounds really pleasant and it's enjoyable for your audience to listen to and that they don't even notice it. It just becomes part of the experience. And for them, all they know is they walk away from viewing your content or experiencing your content. And all they remember is the message that you were trying to convey to them, whatever that was, whether it's a theme for a narrative film or a, an educational piece or whatever it was. If it sounds great, that's a huge factor in leaving with them with the right message, with the right impact that you are trying to convey. A lot of people overlook that when they're getting started in content creation, but once they discover that and they figure out how to do that, the value and the impact of their message really seems to take off. Best place to find my work is on YouTube at Curtis Judd. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at creatorsbymoonlight. The 1990s. My very favorite decade, especially for music. This is Dope Nostalgia and I'm your host Naomi Carmack and every week we revisit the era that brought us Hammer Pants, Crystal Pepsi, Pogs, Hypercolor, Pokemon, and some of the greatest songs of all time. On Dope Nostalgia, not only do I have episodes where I talk about the big artists of the 90s with friends, but sometimes those big artists come on the show. Past guests include Naughty by Nature, George Lamont, Alana Miles, Color Me Bad, Biff Naked, Ed the Sock, Shakespeare's Sister, Two Unlimited, The Funky Bunch, Technotronic, Rosala, Tara Kemp, Mr. Big, Honeymoon Sweet, Right Said Fred, and so many more. You can always leave us a voicemail and tell us what you think, and we'll play it on the show. 780-851-8785. Dope Nostalgia, a podcast made for 90s kids like me. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are served.